previously on Dying for a Fight. Sean's got a buzz cut, a half-crooked smile, and he just looks like he's ready to get into some trouble. He was actually a golden boy. He was the sweetest, most precocious, the kindest little thing. Towards the end, it was like, dude, you're going to go to prison forever. I never got to see his body, and I know that it was mangled and gross and whatever, but I needed that closure. They have the car with the license plate. The reason his murder is not solved is because of who he is. This is ridiculous. This is kind of my journey uh, of justice, and, and to prove once and for all how, how ridiculous the Portland police are. Before we get started, a warning. This episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing or traumatic. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. So if you look at the video, the one thing is like I was telling people not to be violent. This is Joey Gibson, and he's the leader of a group called Patriot Prayer. And I was telling people to put their weapons away because I wanted them to be violent. The them he's talking about is Antifa. You probably haven't heard of Patriot Prayer if you don't live on the West Coast. But it's the type of group that coalesced early in the Trump years expressly to oppose anti-fascists. Gibson has been getting into street confrontations for years. So it's surprising to hear him say he has regrets now. So Mayday is a great, great example. So first, the one, the one, um, <laughs> regret I have is I was cussing so much, but... Gibson is talking um, about May Day because of what that holiday represents. It's an international holiday that's more than 100 years old. In the U.S., it's mostly celebrated by anarchists and socialists commemorating the bloody fights throughout history for workers' rights. And that bloody past is important because a city like Portland, May Day can usually go one of two ways. Either it ends up like a Labor Day cookout or it turns into a riot. On May Day 2019, Gibson traveled to Portland, and by his own admission, he was hoping to provoke people. He wanted to be attacked, he says, so that people on the internet would get mad at Antifa. And at that time, I knew that Antifa was more hated than people were saying in Portland. They were just too scared. But at first, Gibson wasn't very successful. People had done some marching that day, but they didn't fight with police or break windows, and they didn't attack Gibson. May Day 2019 was looking a lot more like a Labor Day cookout. The anti-fascists and anarchists in the crowd left Patriot Prayer behind and went to their favorite Portland bar, decided to riot. Gibson left too. He drove back home to nearby Vancouver, Washington to go to a bar and drink with friends. And if that was the end of the story, this day in 2019 would have been long forgotten. But outside Cider Riot, another group that hated Antifa was gathering. They recorded themselves debating whether they should march to Cider Riot and get in a fight. We walk down Burnside and they decide to come down and fucking attack us. And we gotta do what we gotta do. Yeah, I'm fine. As long as they come after us. Gibson and Patriot Prayer are key to the story because they're a type of catalyst, a spark that ignites this whole situation. That's the one thing that I'm kind of hung up on is us, us just like walking into okay, the look, bar. Oh, yeah. So that's not happening. You see, Gibson wasn't there initially when the people opposing Antifa started plotting a confrontation near Cider Riot. And that group was having doubts as to whether they should get in the faces of those at Cider Riot. Okay, I didn't come here to be the aggressor. Yeah. I didn't come here to be a fucking aggressor. I'm done with this shit. Gibson had a high profile already. He was known for confronting the left in Portland. So this group outside Cider Riot turned to him for advice. Joey got a phone call. This is Russell Schultz, another member of Patriot Prayer. 
and a friend of Gibson's. And he says to me, hey, these guys are watching Cider Riot right now. The whole, their whole outdoor area is just full of black block with weapons. Schultz and Gibson were 20 minutes away when they got this call about people dressed in all black clothing at a bar. So I wanted to go down there and just get it on video. Gibson says it was strange that people at this Portland bar were wearing ski masks. This is before COVID happened, and some of the people had cans of pepper spray. Um, why is there a bunch of people with weapons drinking outside of a bar wearing masks? Like, this isn't normal behavior. For years, Gibson had been leading rallies where he would get in the face of anti-fascists, film it, and then post it on social media. They were spectacles, really. He railed about free speech and how lawless a city like Portland was. Here on May Day, he now had a chance to confront anti-fascists, or Antifa as he would call them, on their home turf. The same bar Sean Kellier was at the night he was killed. They were out there, and so I just decided to go. So Gibson and Schultz get in the car. They drive 20 minutes and lead Patriot Prayer straight to Cider Riot. They bring these two groups together, and it's the right mix to make this bomb explode. For around 30 minutes, anti-fascists and Patriot Prayer stood in the street outside Cider Riot, facing off, shouting at each other. Russell Schultz was one of the people there, standing toe-to-toe with anti-fascists who were covering their faces with bandanas and ski masks. Oh, they're very upset. They're, they felt, they felt uh, insulted that we were there. People on both sides of the confrontation started to throw bottles and rocks at each other. And then a fight breaks out. Here's Gibson again. Two men, <laughs> one was a doorman that worked for Satterite, did security for Satterite officially, and then another guy who I don't even know who he was, he was, I assume he was a patriot. They were like, hey, let's let's brawl. All right, like, if it's mutual combat, you know, like, let them fight. Gibson made a deal with the Siderite security guard. I said, hey, if you beat him, I was like, we'll leave. And uh, he was like, you shake, he's like, you swear? And I was like, yeah. And so they fought for a little bit. Two men, one dressed in all black, covering his face with a bandana, the other in jean shorts and a hoodie, circle each other with their fists raised. People circle around them. One man who was on Gibson's side of the political divide wears goggles and a helmet with an American flag slapped on the back. He's shouting fighting instructions. He says, jab right, jab right. That went on for a while. Like, the Antifa guy almost quit at a certain point, too. Um, but he, he kept going. And and then the side riot bouncer sidesteps a jab and hits his opponent with a hard right hand and a knee to the face. Joey Gibson had gotten the viral video he was hoping for when he went to side riot that day. I was enjoying it. Like, I was like, this is like bonding you know, between two groups. And I didn't feel an ounce of hatred from them at that time, what they were doing. And I was like, let them fight, let them fight. It was such a bonding moment. This didn't end as a bonding moment, though. Because even after this fight, the people who showed up with Gibson wanted to keep fighting. 
the violence continued to escalate. Gibson has been charged with the crime of riot for this day, which is a felony. And people from Gibson's crew yelled out for more fights because their side had lost this first one. They wanted retaliation, and the anti-fascists at Siderite became angry. They started yelling at Gibson to leave. It tipped into a full-out riot when a man swung a collapsible baton into the crowd, hitting an anti-fascist in the head. She fell to the ground face first onto the pavement. She was knocked out from the blow, and some of the far-right crowd started to run away. People would face felony criminal charges for this fight. A woman was seriously hurt, and still, for some people with Patriot Prayer, that day was fun. Before images of black-clad anti-fascists fighting with police became a fixture in cable news, or far-right militias would go on to storm the U.S. Capitol, events like this brawl outside Cider Riot were happening in Portland routinely. It's just one of the many touch points in the years leading up to 2020 where you can clearly see, looking back now, how all these different personalities and reasons for being at protests were bumping up against each other, setting off chain reactions tiny explosions that were going to result in real devastation and eventually people getting killed. From something else in Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is The Fault Line, dying for a fight. I'm Sergio Olmos. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently, ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. When you're black, you grow up with the, the talk, right? Gregory McKelvey grew up in Portland. And the talk is different than the birds and the bees talk. Your black person talk is like, this is how to act when the police come. Portland is one of the whitest large cities in America, in a state that was founded with rules in the Constitution that excluded black people from even living here. Rules that wouldn't be repealed by voters until 1926. Other racist language would stay in the state Constitution until 2002, when McCalvey was nine years old. 
And so, like, there's a form of life where it's like you're kind of an activist without even being an activist, right? Greg isn't necessarily someone you'd expect to lead an uprising. He grew up middle class in Portland. His mom is a lawyer and a Democrat. And his dad was a Republican for much of his life. My dad is black, and, like, his whole thing is, like, I couldn't vote for Clinton because if he cheats on his wife, then he'll cheat on his country. And he, like, still says that to this day. And while Gregory McKelvey says that he went to good schools as a kid and his parents always kept him safe, being black in a place like Oregon that was specifically set up to oppose blackness, it pulled him towards protests in a way he couldn't avoid. You see the connections to that life that even if it hasn't destroyed your life yet, you've seen it destroy people around you and you know uh, to think about it. The first time Greg went to a protest was in 2014. A Missouri grand jury had just declined to bring charges against Darren Wilson, the police officer who shot and killed 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson. McKelvey was in college studying political science, and he showed up to this protest with his brother. It was put on by a coalition of civil rights leaders, some of which had been active since the 1960s. They start singing We Shall Overcome, and I'm like with like some of like my younger like friends or something, and we we're like, yo, we don't even know the words to this song, but we know y'all niggas have been singing this shit for 60 years, and you still ain't overcome. But it's like, yo, we didn't come to sing We Shall Overcome. We're pissed. So the song finishes, and the organizers tell everyone the protest is over. But the younger people in the crowd, people like Greg, they don't budge. A guy in the crowd steps up. He just like is like, nah, protest isn't over. And so we just marched. It was my first like understanding of like, wait, there's like, you don't have to do what the liberal organizer said. The power of just having a megaphone, you could take the crowd wherever you want. Greg says that at this time in his life, he felt like he could be a leader too. He was comfortable speaking in front of people because he had done acting classes in school and he had done some work on political campaigns. He says he imagined himself as something he calls a field tilter. In sports, they talk about a thing called like gravity or being a field tilter. And it's like being someone where wherever they're in the field, like for some reason, there's just some gravity towards them. When I was in college, I watched Christian McCaffrey play against the Oregon State Beavers. And I was like, who the who is this kid? Just this little white kid is just dominating. And it was like kickoff returns, kickoffs on the offense, on the defense. It was like, who is this kid? And they call that like gravity or being a field tilter, right? I know what you're thinking. It sounds a little arrogant to think of yourself this way, and maybe it is. But Greg is a kind of field tilter. His speeches put people in the streets, like his now wife. My name is Catherine McKelvey. <laughs> Back in 2016, Greg's magnetism pulled Cat in. He was so passionate and cared so deeply about these issues, and he was so charismatic. I mean, he motivated and moved people like I haven't really seen before. He's such a force of nature. Gregory was giving speeches that were turning out hundreds and sometimes thousands of people in Portland. His profile was rising in the city. It was giving people a different way to think about the election of Donald Trump, going from a helpless feeling to one of, I can fight back. And if you want to point to a moment when Gregory McKelvey really put these skills he has into play, you only have to look at the election night of 2016. 
That's when protests in Portland thrust the city into the spotlight as the epicenter of the Trump resistance. And out front leading those protests were Gregory and Kat McKelvey. Gregory had been grassroots campaigning for Bernie Sanders' first presidential run and was at a Portland bar on election night. He was celebrating the victory of a progressive candidate for city council. And then we find out Trump wins. A huge shock to the world, right? And it was very awkward. I call my mom. She says, well, you got to do something. And then I call Gabe Erbs, who is a union organizer. Uh, he said, you got to do something. And I call Margot Black, um, who was the leader of Portland Tenants United. And she was like, well, you got to do something. This is like the end of the world. And in my mind, I'm like, this is the end of the world. So Gregory and Kat ditched the political party and headed downtown Portland. There was a spontaneous protest forming. No one had called it, but suddenly all these people in the city felt like they had to do something. And so we go, and when we caught up to the crowd, I think they were on a bridge. The way Kat describes the protest, it was kind of out of control. Basically, this is a shit show. There was no one at the head of the march. There was competing megaphones. There was an incohesive message or direction. And it was a shit show. I don't know if I can say that. I'm sorry. <laughs> People were in the streets, colliding with each other, looking for where to go next. Kat said she looked around. I saw that man get hit by a car and fly over the hood of that vehicle. This was well before an anti-fascist counter-protest in Charlottesville, Virginia, would put the threat of a car attack into public consciousness. I turned to Greg and I said, we need to do something. You have to do something. So Gregory runs to the front of the crowd. They're just starting to take over a bridge. Someone handed Greg a microphone and he stops this massive group. He tells them that police will be able to split them up if they cross the bridge. And everybody kind of realizes he has a point. So they turn around and they march back downtown. Someone gives me the microphone and like, here, take this, right? It was everyone from old hippies in stretched t-shirts to young college kids with their fists in the air. They were all waiting for Greg's next instructions on where to go. A couple days later, at a similar protest, Greg was leading another group. And he says that's when inspiration struck him. And on the bridge, I'm like handing my phone to her and I'm like, making. she's like, what do you want to call it? I'm like, I don't know, Portland Resistance. Kat takes Greg's cell phone and makes a Facebook page. With the press of a button, she launches Portland's Resistance. Gregory speaks into the megaphone. He told them, follow Portland's Resistance on Facebook, on Twitter, on, you know, the, these platforms. And we're thinking, like, you know, some people will like it, some people won't, this and that. And, like, every news station is on my ass. Like, I'm getting calls constantly. Just as the brawl at Sideriot wouldn't have happened without Joey Gibson leading people there, Gregory could be seen as a key ingredient as well. Not because he started the fight, or that he was even there, but because he helped give voice to anxiety activists on the left were feeling in 2016. He helped take protesting from a niche subculture to something more mainstream. He was the oxygen for people on election night. When Greg went to his first protest, he said he didn't want to sing We Shall Overcome. He said he was pissed. And now he had an army marching behind him that felt the same way. As protests started happening more and more in Portland, Sean Kellier was constantly in the streets. He was telling his friends and others to be more radical, to fight back. His mom, Laura Kellier, says when the fight at Siderite happened, Sean was bummed because he was at work and he missed it. But people are not born radicals. If you ask Laura how Sean became an anti-fascist, 
She'll tell you about a time when he was still really young. Laura and Sean had been living with her stepdad. I mean, we lived in a middle-class home, you know. Laura says Sean's father wasn't in his life much when he was young, but his grandfather filled that role. Sean would spend a lot of time with him outside. He had them out there chopping wood, doing chores, you know, just he was so big on work, and you got to work for what you have. And that work ethic paid off. Sean had good grades, and he read a lot, and he was athletic, too. He started when he was, I think, about seven or eight, and it was with White Tiger Martial Arts with Mr. Luffler. It was non-contact Taekwondo, which is actually a lot harder than making contact. And he took off. He became a black belt by, I think, age 12. Michael Fletcher was friends with Sean at an early age. He says he met Sean through Taekwondo after Micah's mother had enrolled him in Sean's class. The first time I met Sean was in that martial arts studio. He was at about the same age as me. He was already a black belt with several stripes on his belt. What'd you think of him when you first met him? So what I see is this kid that's really cocky. Um, not cocky in that way people are where what they're trying to do is exude something. But cocky like somebody that really understands what they're doing and, and is passionate about it and likes it. And so like in a lot of his demonstrations, for instance, instead of like this very formal thing, it's just like, hey, everybody, how's it going? This is what we're going to do today. Let's start with the stretches. Oh, big stretch. Oh, but just say that like just being very outlandish and like he was kind of bombastic and he was kind of loud, but he was disciplined. He knew what he was talking about. And he meant it when he said it, whatever it was that he said. Micah says Sean's whole personality was a kind of awakening for him. He was a kid who was a black belt at 12 years old. He was confident and funny. And that leaked into my personal life because due to the fact that I'm autistic, especially back then, I didn't have as many methodologies to deal with, like, paying attention in a high-stimulus environment, right? And he would come to my house and, like, attempt to train me. And I'm sitting here jumping on top of a couch, excited that there's another human in my house that isn't my mother and father. And this kid's just sitting here trying to figure out what exactly it is that he's supposed to do with me. But what was cool about it was he was very kind in that nature. Like, there was no forcing of things, you know? He allowed me the space to be who I was while also allowing me the opportunity to learn what I wanted to learn. As I was learning about Sean's childhood, at first it didn't make sense to me how he went from this kid who liked martial arts and video games to someone who would be fighting actual neo-Nazis in the streets less than a decade later. So I asked Micah if Sean was political from an early age. I know you guys were young, but did he start talking about like anti-fascist ideas, anarchist ideas? You know, that's the funniest thing. So no, not even slightly. I had no idea until I was at a minimum 19 that he even understood how to spell the world politics. And this is one thing I've come to understand about Sean Kellier the more I've looked into him. Sean didn't tell everyone everything about his life. Like most of us, it was piecemeal. Some knew some parts of him, and others had a different version of him. There were a few people outside of his mom and his siblings who knew him fully. And I say that because when I asked Laura about Sean being around politics at a young age, she gave me a very different answer. So we talked politics a lot. We're, we're Irish and, and very proud of our Irish roots, and Sean was raised to believe that the IRA is a good thing. The IRA, that's the Irish Republican Army, the paramilitary organization 
that has fought for more than 100 years for Irish independence from Britain. This struggle later morphed into what became known as the Troubles, a violent, decades-long conflict that took place primarily in Northern Ireland. It was a fight that all started with protests against discrimination and oppression being met by a violent police response. We talked a lot about it and he read a lot about it. Laura Kellier says her son was very young when he first learned about the IRA. And he, he liked the idea of, you know, people standing up against those that oppress them. And at first it sounded like it was a kind of history lesson. Like this is your family history and you should understand where you come from something any family might do. We um, do a tradition on St. Patty's Day, like where we actually have a, a moment, like a minute of silence over the potato before everybody has to take a bite of just a single boiled potato so we can honor those that died in the famine and what really caused the famine and not what the whitewashed version is of it. So that started really young. But the more I talked to Laura, the more it became clear that these discussions about the IRA were more than a history lesson. It seemed like maybe as a child, Sean was hearing accounts of the Troubles that came closer to first-hand knowledge than something you find in a textbook. I wasn't even privy to all the conversations, but because he was a boy, he got to be with the men. So I'm not even sure on some of those conversations, but I know that a lot of it was about how, I know one of them was actually about one of the bombings and where a child was killed. Because Sean at first was like, that's bad. And they said, and that child would have grown up and killed us, which, you know, but I, I think it made Sean think more outside of the box. The history of the IRA is bloody and extreme. It's very outside most people's boxes. It occurred to me how formative it must have been for a kid who's not even a teenager yet to hear about these intense, bloody conflicts, to hear how the Irish Catholics resisted British control of Northern Ireland, and to hear it firsthand from someone. I asked Laura if she thought that influenced Sean later in life to join protests in Portland where he was putting his own body on the line for ideas he believed in. And she said yes, that the IRA was a kind of clear starting point for him. Oh, yeah. He was always intrigued by that. And he started reading more, especially around 12, like once Grandpa died, he, he started reading a lot more philosophical things. and, and Just on his own picked that Just up. on his own. And you may not have caught that just there. The other turning point in Sean's early life was when his grandfather, Laura's stepfather, died. Not only did he lose a father figure, but Laura says she had to move out of the home they were living in with her stepfather's family. She and her children were suddenly on their own, trying to get by. They moved to a working-class neighborhood that's the opposite of what you imagine when you think of Portland. It's on the city's east side, and there aren't hipsters or trendy coffee shops the Lentz neighborhood is a type of place a city just ignores because the people in power don't come from there. Portland city data shows Lentz and the neighborhood around it have a larger non-white and immigrant population than most of this very white city. Interstate 205 cuts right down the middle of it. So you have Laura and her kids going from a comfortable middle-class living to suddenly seeing a very different side of the city up close. I wasn't making a lot of money. Laura tried to pay the bills through providing in-home care for people with developmental needs. So I was working like 60, 70 hours a week and he was taking care of his siblings. He saw inequalities that he had never seen before. I mean, there were times when food was really lean. So for him to go from the difference from, you know, middle class, we always had good food, you know, anything you wanted, you had basically. 
to, I'm struggling. I can't pay the water bill to, you know, this time. I can't do this. Micah Fletcher was growing up in this neighborhood, too. We grew up in a neighborhood known as Felony Flats, okay? There was a way that we grew up where here's the deal. You don't talk about your problems. Why? Because everyone has them, and you're probably not the one that's the worst off. Even when you have it bad, you're probably not the worst off. Like, we grew up in neighborhoods where 11-year-olds sold cocaine to pay their parents' rent. Like that, and that, that was just what happened. It was very normal. There was no batting eyes. There was no fucking being weird about it. It was just like, oh, there's fucking uh, Joshua. He's going down the street right now to go cop some heroin. He's going to go fucking flip down there on fucking 80th in uh, Gleason uh, to the local trap house. And it's at this point that Laura says she started to see real anger in Sean. He really saw for the first time what it was like to be living poor and working poor. And he saw the inequalities in the school, and it just started him just seeing that and seething inside. He was so angry. Sean was mad for years, and he started sneaking out of his mom's house at 15. And much like Gregory McKelvey found himself at police protests over police killings, Sean found himself at a protest too, one that took place years earlier. On October 6, 2011, thousands of people marched in downtown Portland. They came in solidarity with the Occupy Wall Street movement that started weeks earlier in New York. Students said they were facing crushing debt, and some people said they had nowhere to go after losing their homes in the financial crisis of 2008. And so they set up tents in Chapman in Lousdale Square, near the federal courthouse in downtown Portland. People played music and cooked for each other, and there was a community and camaraderie. Lots of the press treated the Occupy protests as a bit of a joke. Hi, I'm Joseph Rose with the Oregonian. We decided to come down here today and take a tour to see what exactly is going on, what life is like. We're creating the economy we would like to see in the world where everyone takes care of everyone else. So free massages? That's part of it, yeah. Great. To people who live comfortable lives, Occupy was a punchline. But for a kid like Sean, who was 15 years old, and pissed off about all the inequality he saw in his neighborhood, Occupy Portland was the type of place where he was taken seriously. People told him he didn't have to feel helpless about his anger, that he could fight back. The campground was full of radical politics. Sean started calling himself Yaka and identified as non-binary for a time. We will use he, him pronouns for Sean throughout this show because that's how he identified at the end of his life. Laura started to notice that Sean was filled with purpose again. After years of being angry and lost and searching, he seemed to have found his people. She pointed to Occupy as a turning point for him when I asked her this question. Do you remember the first time Sean talked about being an anarchist? That wasn't until he was 15, and it was Occupy. And it, it floored me because I honestly didn't know anything about anarchism. What, what did he say? He came home and he's like, he had all this reading stuff and, and, you know, I really think you should read this, Mom. And it was that some, I don't even remember what it was. I'm like, I'm looking, I'm like, what the, f- what the fuck is this? You know, <laughs> anarchist shit. What, what is this? You know, I didn't know anything about any of that. I was just trying to survive. Anarchism can conjure a lot of different ideas for people. If you're on the average left-right political spectrum in America, and you've never thought about radical politics, 
the word might even sound a little scary, like burning trash cans and mayhem in the streets. But as a political philosophy, anarchism is a belief primarily that institutions like personal property and religion and the state all place a limit on people's freedoms in different ways. It's a belief that people in their natural state do what's best for them, that they don't need a government to tell them what's right, and that things like governments really only use violence and coercion to control people and feed the wealthy. So I, I talked to him and I'm like, what is going on? And he said, mom, this isn't right. We need to fight Wall Street. You know, capitalism is the problem. You know, when he says this, because I know you're working a ton of hours at this point and you guys are just kind of struggling to survive. Are you going like, all right, I'll talk to you about capitalism. Or are you going like, hey, no, you need to be like at home. Like, I, I'm not going to talk capitalism. No, I, I let him speak about it. It might seem bizarre to you that a mother would let her teenage son attend protests. But from Laura's perspective, it was better that he do that than seeing Sean fall further into his own anger. I always, always felt that kids need a voice. So, and I wanted to hear more and it was interesting. I didn't necessarily believe all of it at the time. I'd be like, okay. Sean was a juvenile and he was having run-ins with the police regularly. But Laura assumed that it was Sean's fault, that he was being confrontational and testing his boundaries. He was a teenager after all, and maybe she thought this would just be a phase. But on May Day 2012, Laura's views would change dramatically. She started the day at her job. She was in someone's home, providing care for a person with developmental needs while their parents were running errands. It was a mostly normal day. Laura says her client liked to watch the news, and it was on when she arrived. The news is in a live shot of a protest in downtown Portland, the May Day protest. And then the person who Laura is caring for starts calling Sean's name. Laura turns and looks at the TV. Demonstrators refusing to leave downtown streets tonight are led away in handcuffs. A largely And I'm watching Sean's, you know, leading all these people. And then you just see the two cops, big cops. And Sean was tiny then, five foot six, 120 pounds. They tackle him so hard. And you could tell they didn't even need to. They literally could have just walked up and said, let's go. What was your feeling when you saw that? I'm like, mother frick, I gotta go. <laughs> Laura makes a phone call, calling the parents of the person she's giving in-home care for. I had to try to stay calm, and it was really hard because autistic people will feed off of your emotions. So. And at that point, you weren't thinking, okay, Sean, is confused. He did something. At that point, you're thinking, no, the, the police did this. They, they hurt my son. That's, I, I saw it. <laughs> I mean, he literally, and Sean wasn't smashing windows at that time or anything. He was literally in the middle of the road. People were following him. I mean, I'm thinking, what the fuck? You don't hurt somebody for that. You could see it in the video. This was 2012. It was before using your cell phone to record the police was all that common. And Laura says at this moment for her, is the first time she really has serious doubts creep in about the police. This one interaction where police tackled her son to the ground, it made her wonder if Sean was right to be out there protesting. Other videos would surface after this incident, and in one of them, Sean tells his side of the story to a cameraman. I got you, Sean, I filmed the whole thing. He's fine with me, you come watch him, That's fine. Officer, what's he under arrest for? 
Sean calls out to the person filming, a YouTuber who goes by the name Mike Bluehair. Sean says one of the officers punched him in the face after he was tackled. Which one? This guy, right there. Punched you in the face? Yeah, that's the one. That guy out of the street, my friend. That's the one that, that punched me in the face. Wow. Yeah. And Mike Bluehair makes a kind of key observation to understanding the rest of Sean's life. Yeah. Yeah, Portland Police Bureau radicalizing teenagers one knuckle sandwich at a time. Portland Police, he says, are radicalizing people through excessive force. One knuckle sandwich at a time. Good job. I wasn't able to independently verify what happened at this protest. But Laura claims Sean did have a sprained ankle and a slight concussion. So it was late at night when I saw his face. I'm like, what the hell, you know, kind of thing. And he was fired, he was amped up. And he, as, as a 15-year-old boy getting punched by a cop, that must have been really traumatizing. Do you that, that radicalized day? him the most. He was so angry, and that's when he started really, like, we gotta bring him down. What happened to Sean that night, being roughed up by cops, is not particularly special people of color in America experience similar treatment all the time. It's a brutal and capricious type of punishment. But that day, for him, seems to have triggered a change in his life. He stopped calling himself Yaka and became known to fellow activists as Arminio Lewis, a militant anarchist, obsessed with the Spanish Civil War and ready to fight if he had to. In a way, this moment was radicalizing for Laura too. She remembers going to pick up her son from police custody. And so you have to go to the back of the building and there's a guy standing at the door. And I said, I am Sean Kelly's mom and I'm here to get my son now. Well, you, no, I said, you never get my son right now. I saw what you bastards did. I just didn't understand why did they have to do that? Like if they had to arrest him because he was in the streets, I would have been, oh, well, you know, Sean, you were in the streets, but no, this was brutal. From Laura's point of view, if these police officers who had handled Sean's arrest had just walked up to Sean and arrested him, Rather than tackling him, maybe he wouldn't have been radicalized. As for Laura that day. I was mad. I was so mad. And I could hear Sean going, Mom, calm down. It's okay. I'm okay. I said, no, you're not. I said, you better bring him the fuck out here right now because I was getting pissed. And I think Sean was worried I'd get arrested because I was. Where's Sean? Is he? He's in the back. I can't even quite see him. He's like, calm down, Mom. Mom, calm down because I'm, I'm angry. Um, and they're like, just just go, just have them go, because <laughs> they wanted me out of there. So. More after the break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. We're back. Once again, we're thinking about what the world might look like once we lose, stop using, or just run out of things that feel essential to our existence. What happens when we can't rely on fossil fuels anymore? Is eating meat really all that ethically dubious? How are ads shaping our impulses and what happens if they go away? So join us as we try to piece together what happens when the things we've taken for granted start to disappear. From Hyper Object Industries and Sony Music Entertainment, listen to Without wherever you get your podcasts. 
Throughout the Trump era, protests in Portland were a time when a lot of different people with a lot of different motivations came together. These are people who might not be in the same room, but here they were, face-to-face on the streets together. You had politically liberal people like Gregory McKelvey, who saw this time as an opportunity for progressive politics and reforms to counter a conservative agenda. And there were people like Sean Kellyer, who were already disillusioned and angry about American politics in general. Anarchists like Sean and liberals like Gregory McKelvey, they might protest together. And in people's minds, they would get lumped together. But these were two different groups of people who have almost nothing in common politically. Gregory believed, and still believes, that voting matters. Sean didn't believe in voting at all. He didn't believe in the system. Sean once said that the only time he ever supported an election was over the legalization of marijuana. Sean was clear with Gregory that he was never going to agree with him politically. Back in 2018, when Gregory interviewed Sean about his anarchism on the local community radio station, KBU, Gregory asked if people on the left with different views could come together. But like the the idea of, look, these leftist groups have big disagreements, but like they should unite on maybe on what they do agree on and we should fight it out later. Right. And so that I do not believe in left unity personally. Uh I believe in unity from the bottom. And what that means is in the context of fascist attacks and labor disputes, I will unite with anybody. Hmm. I will be on the picket line with anybody as long as you were there to hold that picket line. And that's really important because there's a lot of people, especially in this city, at protests and stuff that I do not want to talk to. Just days after Trump was elected, you can see how people with very different ideas coming together against a common enemy can create a whole new set of problems no one could have predicted. Gregory believed he could unite people in the single cause of opposing Trump. He was rallying thousands of people nightly after he led that first election night protest on the bridge. But on November 10th, 2016, a chain reaction would start when these different ingredients mixed. Gregory and his group Portland's Resistance were once again leading a big march. News cameras were there, a helicopter circled overhead. Anarchists decided to show up as well. And we don't know if Sean was there, because everybody in that crowd was dressed in black. And they were there to give Gregory and his friends a lesson in direct action. The anarchists started smashing businesses and bank windows. One group went down the line of cars at a dealership, breaking the glass, and in one case, caving in the roof with a baseball bat. Overnight, violence erupted on the streets of Portland. During the second straight day of protest, I got hit. I got hit. Over the election of Donald Trump, police in riot gear launched flashbangs and fired rubber bullets to try to break up the crowd of roughly 50. This was four years before national Black Lives Matter protests would deal with some of these same questions about what Americans consider acceptable and unacceptable at protests. Gregory and Kat McKelvey immediately disavowed the mayhem. We have a protest that we hold that we're like responsible for all the press releases and there's like a million dollars in damage and car dealerships get smashed. Oh yeah. And like, now we have to message around this in a way that is like, one, we didn't do that shit. Two, yeah, that was our protest. And three, like, we don't think the people who did that stuff need to go to jail forever. 
And it's like that those were hard communications. Gregory and Sean were able to work together at protests. But these tensions about what worked and what didn't were always there. Portland's resistance, Gregory's group, put out a fundraiser in the day after the protests to fix some of the damage. It raised thousands of dollars, and it drew praise from people in Portland, liberals and conservatives, people who didn't want to see property destruction. But Sean's friends? We were, like, hated by anarchists. Like, just extreme hate because we were putting money on windows, and it was this first thing in the beginning where it was... Lots of broken windows at a car dealership, which I didn't think was, like, effective. But also, I'm like, I, I'm not crying about this. But it was, like, not very popular to say in the news, like, I don't really care that much. It was fucking hard. Like, it was really hard. <laughs> like, how big is the tent here going to be, right? But Gregory's problems, and really Portland's problems, the country's problems, were about to be much larger than discussions about who fits in the big tent. Because it wasn't just the liberal crowd watching the property destruction on the news. Joey Gibson and other conservatives were watching as well. They want to destroy what you guys do. They want to destroy what you guys believe in. They want you to be so afraid to go into the streets. They will beat the crap out of grandmas. They will beat up anybody they disagree with. And I want you guys, I need your help, okay? We're going to be going up and down the West Coast. We'll be going to Berkeley. Portland, Seattle, we'll go in most intolerant areas, and we're going to do it with a, a tight-knit group. But we're going to challenge the liberals. They have teamed up with Antifa. They believe it is okay to team up with Antifa. So we will go into these areas, and we will expose their violence for who they are. We will get it on film, and I need your guys' help to spread the message and to spread the word, because it is not okay to have a gang dressed in all black running through the streets, light stuff on fire. Anger was building a backlash to what people were watching on social media and nightly news. If you ask Joey Gibson why he led Patriot Prayer to confront people at Cider Riot in 2019, he will say it's because he didn't like what he saw happening in Portland. I definitely was like, if they're gonna be aggressive, my goal is to get it on camera. But I really just wanted people to see like, look at this, this is weird. Like, why is it that within 30 seconds they're able to pull out like 10 cans of pepper spray? Like, where's how is that even normal? And that's why Joey Gibson and the far right are the final spark. Gibson didn't need to be in the streets, but like Sean and like Gregory, he felt like he had to be, whatever the consequences. Culture war through protests was coming to Portland. The heated debates online were no longer confined to social media. They were bleeding out into the streets. It was coming to the left, it was coming to the right, and it was coming for the police. And Laura Kellier, Sean's mom, says that's why she doesn't believe the Portland police will ever solve her son's homicide. Do you know how many Leo or law enforcement sites that I went through and they were celebrating my son's death? That's next week on The Fault Line, Dying for a Fight. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. The show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was written by Ryan Haas and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at delligirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete G.K. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. 
Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Ekpatola. Production assistance from Bashak Artin. Member support makes all the podcasts and journalism you rely on from Oregon Public Broadcasting possible. Help ensure the next important story is covered, invest in stories that begin in the Pacific Northwest, and reverberate throughout the country. Join in as a sustaining member now at opb.org pod. Thank you for your support. Thank you.